the Christ in the biblical sense is the difference between heaven and hell. How do I know that? First John 5 says, Whosoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. That's not just head information. It's full consent of the will. So you are turned to John 5. Man, you're way ahead of me today. Thank you, worship team, for a great job as usual. And uh, today we're going to look at a principle in this passage that's taught throughout the Bible, but it's not necessarily emphasized a lot today in our circles, I don't think. And here's the principle. Seeing is not necessarily believing. Or the flip side of that is miracles do not necessarily catalyze faith. People can deny them, explain them away, or ignore them. The idea that if God would just do more miracles, then everybody would get saved is just not correct. While for those who will respond to God's call, God gives more than enough light to see who Christ is and to trust him. But for most people in Jesus' day in the first century A.D., as well as in our day, 21st century A.D., whatever light gives some people is only going to harden them spiritually. So we're going to see that principle today in John chapter 5. But before we do that, let's pray the text, not the teacher, will be the issue today. Let's pray we'll be teachable to God's word. And also let's pray for those who protect and serve us, our military, peace officers, firefighters, and the Duncan Police and Fire Department. Okay, and uh, let's see. Sydney, would you lead us up in prayer? Thank you. Abstract thought warmer upper. This goes back a ways, but uh, some of you may not remember, but for a long time, our Sunday morning services started at 9, and then uh, probably 15 years ago or longer, the Board of Elders changed it from 9 to 9.30. This is kind of an oldie and goldie, but uh, top five reasons TBF changed our Sunday start time from 9 to 9.30-ish, right? Number five, our policy on daylight savings time is just not confusing enough. <laughs> now, you guys haven't heard about our, our policy. I'm going to state the policy. Okay, Tyler? You're almost a medical doctor. You're a smart guy. The, the, the TBF policy on, on daylight savings time is when in the spring, when everybody else springs forward and Dustin loses an hour of sleep and makes him grumpy, so we don't want to do that to him. In the spring, when everybody else springs ahead, we don't until after church services. So we save you an hour in addition to whatever next year. I, I hope something I've done will last with this grave. We'll see. They may have a mutiny. They may go back and say, we're going to do it. And, and that's the policy. That's all the policy. So guess what? The first Sunday in November this year, when everybody falls back, what does the policy say? It doesn't say anything. So yeah, we're not going to steal an hour from you on the back side of that. I mean, of course you fall back in the fall, right? But that's that. So it wasn't confusing enough, so we decided to change the start time. 30 more minutes of sleep for TBFers means that there's a slight chance that somebody other than Homer Cox will actually laugh at my jokes. Because <laughs> he laughs at all of them, and some people just have a conscientious objection to laughing at pastoral jokes. For some reason, 9.30... Is Janet Diggs' lucky number? She told me it was a lucky number, and so I went to the elder board and said, we've got to change the start time. 30 more minutes 
to get ready on Sunday morning means that most TBFers are now only about 10 minutes late every week. <laughs> so that helps. And finally, these two guys promised they'd never move out of town if the elders would just approve the change. This may be the last time I get to use this. That is me and Tommy, uh, like in 1989, in Phyllis Davis's backyard at a party for the softball team. And uh, you can get arrested for dressing like that nowadays. <laughs> but I had hair when I needed it, didn't I? Okay, we're going to focus on John 5, 1 through 18, but we're going to correlate it with verses 39 through 46 after that, but we're going to break the passage down real uh, simply into the setting of this statement uh, Jesus is going to make, the sign miracle, uh, the sign miracle itself, and then the scandal, I'm putting scandal quote, because he does nothing wrong, but people spin what he did and try to make him look like a bad guy. Uh, and the principle is, beware, seeing is not necessarily believing. The people who saw Jesus do miracles, Tommy, didn't all believe. And they won't believe it. They don't even believe in miracles now, even when you see one. I've seen a lot of miracles. Uh, you know, I'm in sales, not management. I don't tell God when to do the miracles, but we've seen some amazing miracles. I bumped into Judy Philly just the other day, and I remember some miracles early in our interaction with her and her husband, George Bill Dickinson, and I went to the hospital in Oklahoma City. She was going to have surgery for cancer, and then they canceled the surgery because the, God had healed the cancer. But um, between us visiting with her and finding out she didn't need the surgery, Bill and I prayed for her in her room, and her husband, George, came in, and he cussed us out and threatened to beat us up and left the room. And about five, 15 years later, he came to faith. And unfortunately, he was dying. But um, a couple, the last couple of times he'd get out of his house, he came here on Sunday morning so he could worship with us. So we, we talked about that. Salvation is one of the greatest miracles. Never belittle that. You know, for a sinner to be saved by the grace of God is an amazing miracle. Okay. Let's look at verses 1 through 5, the setting I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem uh, to observe that feast. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in, in Hebrew Bethesda having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Then notice the bracket, waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which they were afflicted. Close the bracket. A man was there at Bethesda in Jerusalem, who had been ill, asthenia means weakness, and it can be caused by illness or injury. Uh, he'd been there 38 years. After these things is John telling you, I know in the previous two chapters, three and four, Jesus was in Jerusalem with Nicodemus, and then in Samaria, north of Jerusalem in Judea, talking to the Samaritan woman, and then back to Galilee, healing the nobleman's son, but now he's in Jerusalem again. So that's what he's, that's why he's telling you after those things, the previous two chapters. There was a feast of the Jews. Now, typically John tells you tough what feast he's talking about. Passover, the feast of lights we know as Hanukkah. 
uh, or tabernacles, which are mentioned specifically in this book. For some reason, John doesn't tell us, uh, Lana, which specific Jewish feasts, there are seven major ones, was being observed here, because you don't need to know. If you needed to know, he'd tell you. He's just, he's, he's emphasizing not which feast, but the fact that Jesus is back in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was the home office for institutional Judaism. All the big religious leaders all lived in nice homes and mansions in and around Jerusalem. That's where the temple was. So we're back in Jerusalem where the religious leaders are. And everything we need to know about this passage, um, he'll give us. We don't necessarily need which feast it is. It's interesting. The the commentaries suggest Passover, Tabernacles, or Purim. But we don't know. We don't really need to know. But he mentions that in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there was a pool called Bethesda. Now, here we are in Jerusalem. You guys know these are real places, real people, real events. The southern region where the Jews lived was called Judea, and it had cities in it, including, and most importantly, Jerusalem. The central section where the hated, the Jewish people hated the Samaritans. They were, they were half Gentile, half Jewish. And then the northern region where the Jews also lived was called Galilee, but the sophisticated people lived down here. So Jesus spends most of his time with the average people, but he's in and out of Jerusalem, and we're in Jerusalem, and he's talking about a healing at a place called Bethesda in Jerusalem. Now, this is a picture from last May where we are uh, east and south of the Temple Mount. That's where the temple, Jewish temple would have been. The Muslims built that to commemorate the victory of Islam over Judaism and Christianity in about 700 A.D. But uh, here we are. These are real people. That's Anthony. That's Stephanie. That's Carol. That is Kyleen. That's Sue. I think that's Ken. But yeah, so remember that picture because when you look at this schematic, we would have been roughly right, right about here looking back in that direction. But notice, you've got a sheep gate in the pool of Bethesda. Now, when Nehemiah came back from the Babylonian exile and rebuilt the walls, there was the outside northernmost east corner uh, of the city wall was called the Sheep Gate. But in Jesus' day, 400 years later, the Sheep Gate was inside the outer wall and was one way to give access to the temple. Okay, so notice, if you go kind of due north from the temple complex, you got the Sheep Gate and you got the Pool of Bethesda. That's funny, archaeologists were not quite sure there was a place called Bethesda in Jerusalem because they couldn't find it. They didn't find it till 1964. But uh, it's a real place. There's another schematic. I like schematics. But I even like models better. Remember this model? Dustin? Yeah, and you can tell, you know, it's, you know these are these are people looking at this model. But they built this huge uh, model of first century Jerusalem. And here we are looking at Bethesda. That's Bethesda. There's the temple. Today would be the Dome of the Rock. It's very nice to have something like that that's so clear. So we're looking at that complex there where there were natural hot springs gushing up and then they built the infrastructure to help people get in there. This is what it looks like now, okay? I would say, uh, whoops, oh shoot. Hit the wrong button. Close your eyes, close your eyes, don't look. Billy Graham never worked with PowerPoint. 
I mean, at least you got to see the picture again. Yeah. Right. Let's try it this way. That's intelligent design. That's when Eurasian earthquakes and bad people, what happens to the intelligent design. But they found the ruins of Bethesda. It's interesting. I found an older Bible dictionary I didn't even know I had. And uh, archaeologists and biblical scholars for years had tried to locate this mysterious pool archaeologically in Jerusalem. The best estimates were a pool near Galilee. They thought maybe John or a copyist had said Bethsaida instead of Bethesda, which are two different cities. Thinking was, they said Bethsaida or Seda, not Bethesda. Some suggested John, the author of the gospel, meant the pool of Siloam, which is way south in Jerusalem, or the modern-day site called the Fountain of the Valley in the Kijon Valley. Fountain of the Virgin in the Kijon Valley. Excavations in 1964 in Jerusalem have uncovered it. It's exactly what the scripture says. So here's the thing about, I love archaeology, but there's just a small number of archaeologists who are qualified to do these things, and there's a huge number of sites just in Israel. If you had every uh, legitimate archaeologist in the world, it would take them 100 years to start to deal just with Israel, much less whatever you're studying, the Aztecs or the Egyptians or whatever. So here's the thing you got to keep in mind. In archaeology, and in a lot of areas, absence of evidence is not necessarily evidence of absence. Until 1964, they couldn't find Bethesda. Uh, evangel- I, would say, I feel like evangelical scholars are better than uh, liberal critical, because liberal critical scholars, until 1964, will say, ah, John probably made a mistake, or a copy has changed the wording. And we're going to say, no, no, there must be a Bethesda right near the Temple Mount here uh, where the Sheep Gate was. And you keep digging and you find it. So quite often, uh, you know, when you can't find evidence, you're digging in the wrong place or not deep enough or that kind of thing. Now let's deal with the brackets here. You'll notice in most of your Bibles, the King James will probably not uh, show you this, although... Some of those King James study Bibles will, will bracket this text or in some way show you from the middle of three through four or most of four there, you've got kind of a question mark. Well, here's the thing. When you look at the over 5,000 manuscript copies of uh, the New Testament plus uh, early translations and citations where the early church quotes the New Testament, this phrase, this, this series of words starting with waiting for the moving of the waters and so on, it doesn't appear anywhere in any of the manuscript copies, any of the citations, any of the early translations until the 5th century A.D. for whatever reason. Now you can say, well, all of that data was flawed because the original was not captured until the 5th century, but I don't believe that, and most scholars won't do that. I'll go to a study Bible, which is usually the source of all good things, not necessarily. The statement in the latter half, verse 3, through verse 4, waiting for the moving of water. Uh, they, they just say flat, and I agree with it, are not in the original gospel of John. The earliest and best manuscripts for the first 400 years plus, as well as the early versions, translations, and citations, exclude the reading. So, you know, I think probably that was uh, somebody had copied this uh, Greek text, and at the bottom maybe they had heard a preacher's illustration, or maybe there was a legitimate tradition that some Jews at the time thought that when the natural jet action would happen a couple times a day, that meant an angel had moved the spring waters around and people would be healed in a special supernatural way at that point. I don't think that's being affirmed here because you can't find it until the 5th century. So 
Don't panic. We've got a treasure trove. It's embarrassing how much data we've got. I mean, I took high school Latin because they said if you want to be major in biology and become a dentist or a doctor, you've got to know Latin. You really need to know Greek. Cardia, you know, not cardo is where we get the words. But we read, we actually translated part of Julius Caesar's uh, Gallic Wars. And it was written in like the first century BC, but the earliest copy of this in the Latin is dated 900 AD. That's a big gap. And there's only a total of 10 manuscripts. But nobody doubts what Caesar says in the Gallic Wars is essentially what he wrote. The New Testament, written in the first century, you've got portions as early as 125, or maybe it's the John Ryland's papyri. Uh, some carbon dated at 115, very closely after the originals. We've already getting copies. Uh, time span is very small. And 24,000 is talking about the 5,000-plus translations, the many copies of early, uh, uh, the Greek, 5,000 Greek uh, tra- manuscripts copies of the New Testament, the uh, various early translations, and citations. Now, what is a citation? That's when early Christians in their sermons, Chrysostom, quotes from Romans, or quotes from Revelation, or quotes from John. It's been said, if you just had the citations we've got in ancient literature that we've got in hand, it's extant, you can look at it. Uh, if all we had was just the citations, we'd have everything in the New Testament except for 11 verses. So God has inspired his word, he's preserved it, a different mechanism, but you can depend on it. So, you know, some preachers will just preach right through these kind of passages and not comment on them. Others will just skip them and not comment on them. I'm going to say, hey, there's a problem here. Nobody sees this until the 5th century. I'm not saying it couldn't have been original, but I don't think so. So I'm not going to pound the pulpit on that. But you need to know stuff like that, okay? Because sometimes people will try to steal your kid's faith based on stuff like that. And it's not a seminal issue. Okay? God has spoken. He hasn't stuttered. He has preserved his word. Let's go from the setting to the sign. Look at verse 5 or verse 6 through the first little part of chapter, or verse 9. Slow down, Brad. Chapter 5, verses 6 through 9a. When Jesus saw him, this uh, paralytic guy, this guy with paralysis, and knew that he'd been there a long time in that condition, 38 years. It's funny, you know what? 31 years here, six and a half in Shreveport. I'm at 37.5, rounded up to 38. 38 years as a professional Christian. Uh, I don't think of myself as a professional Christian. I went to church before they paid me to come. And I'm happy to come every week. But, yeah, 38 years, it's, it's interesting. It just goes by just like that. But this guy's been a paralytic for 38 years, a long time. Jesus said to him, Jesus totally initiates all of this. Do you wish to get well? Some people like to be miserable because it gives them something to talk about, causes people to focus on them, stuff like that. Some people love being miserable. And he might be in that condition. The sick man answered him, sir, and he has no idea who Jesus is. I have nobody to put me into the pool when the water stirred up. Now, again, well, that's that angel thing. No, the thing would pulse every couple of hours, and it was felt like those um, mineral waters were more effective when the, it was pulsing. Plus, it's more fun, you know? So he's talking about that, I think. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. He thinks if I got in there first, I'd get more benefit. Jesus said to him, get up, 
because you are healed better than new after 38 years and helping him to walk. You know, you can, if he's got some paralysis caused by injury or illness, uh, if you healed all that, you still have all these muscles that have been working for 38 years. That's a problem. But Jesus does complete healing. He knows all that. He wired all that. He invented all that, intelligent design. So he gives him complete healing. It's not like you take a couple of steps while the music's playing, then you get back in a wheelchair and go home after the big rally, which sometimes happens with these guys nowadays. So he initiates it. He says, get up. You're completely healed. Pick up your pallet and walk. He's going to go to the temple first, but basically go home. You can kind of resume a normal lifestyle again. Immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet, and began to walk. Now let's put this in context again, because this is the third of seven sign, specific sign miracles that John includes in his gospel. You know, the first part of the book lists seven specific signs that prove Jesus is the Christ. You need to believe on him for eternal life. Then Jesus tells his disciples how they can fellowship with him and how we can fellowship with him when he's no longer walking around with us anymore. And the ultimate sign that Jesus is the Christ is what? Is resurrection, right? Because that validates the saving value of his death. But look at the key or the purpose statement, the intrinsic genre statement. Look at chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. You've got this magnificent introduction, the prologue. There's an interesting, and I love that passage, chapter 21, the epilogue. But the body of the book ends in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. We saw this last week. Therefore, many other signs. I gave you seven plus the resurrection that Jesus did in the Gospel of John. But Jesus did a lot more miracles than that. But we know miracles don't necessarily catalyze faith. They're awfully encouraging, but they don't necessarily catalyze faith in everybody. Many other sign miracles Jesus also performed in the presence of disciples, which are not written. I'm not including everything I could tell you about Jesus. But these have been written so you have more than enough light to believe, pistuo, to active, receptive trust, not just... Um, Mental ascent that Jesus is the Christ, is your Savior, the Son of God, and believing you'd have life in His name. Now that word for sign in the original is a specific word that means an act that points to some fact. And to John, all these miracles he records are proving that Jesus, who he claims to be, the exclusive issue and the exclusive issuer of eternal life. Okay? Now, if you want to look those up later, that's an interesting study to look at the seven sign miracles he includes. But I prefer this kind of presentation myself. You look at those seven miracles, and we're looking at this one now, this morning. Uh, they get increasingly more spectacular. You go from water into wine to the resuscitation. I actually said it this week. I've been working on it. Um, of a dead man, Lazarus, right? So we're looking at that one right now. Okay, stay there. But again, the problem is miracles aren't necessarily going to catalyze faith in everybody. You can ignore them, you can explain them away, or just deny them. And uh, people then and people now get more than enough light, and it only hardens them, right? Now, this miracle here, the healing of the paralytic guy in, in John 5, is extremely interesting and unique because the vast majority of Jesus' miracles are done in response to personal faith, uh, you hear, think about uh, the leper. If you are willing, you can make me clean. He really believes he can do it. You know, he expresses faith in, in Jesus as Messiah who can heal him. But here, this guy doesn't even know who Jesus is. He has not trusted Christ. Jesus is the Christ before this happened, when it happened, or immediately afterward. And I, I would be surprised if you see him in heaven. 
Maybe he makes it, but he seems to be pretty clueless. I don't think he's the sharpest knife in the drawer, but he might have been the most pitiful case. And, you know, grace means unmerited favor generally. Mercy is unmerited favor that you give because of the pitiful status of the recipient. So grace is a bigger concept than, than mercy. Uh, mercy is when somebody is so pitiful. So, you know, people like to sing about the mercy of God, but they don't like to talk about how pitiful they were before, during, and after, right? But Jesus does this in response to this great personal need for this guy who's uh, been out of action for 38 years, even though he's not a believer at the time and possibly not even afterward. But again, the principle is this isn't going to necessarily catalyze faith. It could, but not necessarily. Now, let's look at the scandal. I'm putting scandal in quotes, Holly, because the folks that are mad at Jesus are mad at him for, for illegitimate reason. They're going to say he broke the Sabbath. He didn't break the Sabbath. You've got the Old Testament law, which is spirituality and training wheels for the uh, nation of Israel to be a signal to the whole world during the generations leading to the coming of Christ, right? But then the Jews put a fence around the law to protect it, and it's called the oral law, and today you can read it in the Talmud, and it's not scripture, but it's an attempt to apply the scripture very specifically. And in the Talmud, called the Oral Law in Jesus' day, the traditions of the elders, there were 39 ways you could break the Sabbath by carrying things. Now, there is no commandment in the law of God that after you've been supernaturally healed by the Messiah, go ahead and just to avoid clutter and litter, Pick up your bed and take it back home. You're not going to need it for that purpose anymore. There is no such law in the Old Testament scripture, but there were 39 ways you could break the Sabbath according to the rabbis, and they're getting Jesus on a process crime here, okay? Uh, talking about scandal. The thing that's really scandalous to folks then and now is the gospel, okay? What is the gospel? First Corinthians 15 says, let me tell you what the gospel is. The gospel is the truth that Christ died for our sins, according to Scripture. He was buried, and he rose again on the third day, according to the Scripture. And let's look at this as scandal. It's to the human viewpoint mind, they don't want a Savior, they want to save themselves. So they want Jesus to be a helper, not a Savior. Or they want probation, not salvation. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The scandal of the gospel. You may never see... Uh, a healing of a paralytic, kind of rare, but God can do that, and he still does things like that all the time. But uh, every time somebody comes to faith by believing the gospel, that is a class A miracle, uh, an especially awesome category. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 17 and 18. For Christ did not send me to baptize. See that, Jenny? Jesus wasn't so much interested in baptizing people but in seeing them believe. And then as believers, you get baptized, just like when you get married, you wear a wedding ring. But it's a symbol. It's not the substance. Christ did not send me, the Apostle Paul, to baptize. But and if you have to be baptized to be saved, Lindell, there's no way he'd say that. David, if you have to be baptized to be saved, he'd say, well, you know, uh, you're saved by Christ, but you access it through baptism. So, of course, I need to baptize as many people who have believed as possible. He baptized people, but that wasn't his main emphasis. He didn't pre- send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And he tells you at the end of the book, the gospel is the fact that Christ died for our sins and rose again. Not in cleverness of speech. Not trying to have, you know, dog and pony show and dancing elephants and stuff to draw a crowd. So the cross of Christ could be the focus. That's, that's what it's all about. 
We just sang about it, didn't we? For the word of the cross, a crucified Savior, you know, the footnote last week said the crucified Messiah just blew their, their minds, even though it's all over the Old Testament. For the word of the cross, that Christ died for our sins, and he's the only way you can get to heaven, and he's the exclusive issue and issuer, is foolishness to those who are perishing. Look at all the world religions. They're do-it-yourself pro- programs, right? But those who are being saved, it's the power of God, the power of God. And then jump over to chapter 15. Just so you can look at it, I'm not going to take the time to read it again because I'm running a little bit later than I wanted to at this point. But here, Paul just tells you what the gospel is. Let me remind you what the gospel is, 15 verse 1. It's how you got saved unless you believed in a dead Messiah, is what he's saying, because if Christ isn't resurrected or faced in vain, he says in verse 14. For here it is, verses 3 and 4. So the gospel, you know, we use the word gospel for gospel jamborees, gospel bookstores, gospel preaching. We use it as an adjective. It's a noun, and it's a specific message. All of us have sinned. Wage of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, because he died for our sins and rose again. And whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Okay. Go back to John 5. Let's look at the scandal in this context. But never forget, you know, uh, faith in Christ is and receiving that gift is the greatest miracle and God's doing it all over the world. Even though in Western Europe, visible, viable, biblical Christianity has shrunk, and I think it's shrinking in the United States, uh, there is a major revival going on right now below the equator, all over Africa and parts of Southeast Asia, I mean, South Korea has more than 50% of the population of South Korea, not North Korea, that are evangelical Christians. Uh, North Korea, there are hundreds of thousands of Christians in concentration camps, a la Hitler-like, that nobody seems to be too concerned about, um, that we need to pray about. I pray about that every day in my life because it's uh, that important. But let's look, at, let's look at the scandal. Look at uh, verse 9b through 13. Now, it was the Sabbath on the day Jesus healed this guy, and that's going to set up the scandal. So the Jews, this isn't anti-Semitic, a nasty thing about the, the entire Jewish population. It's talking about the Jewish leaders. John always talks about the Jews as the Jewish leaders, and they are based in Jerusalem, so they're watching everything Jesus is doing closely, so they have reasons not to receive him. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it's the Sabbath, and we got 39 ways you can break the Sabbath by carrying things, and you're breaking that at least two different ways here, big butt, big boy. And by the way, breaking the Sabbath was a capital crime. So that's serious stuff. This is not spitting on the sidewalk. And it's not permissible, according to our old law that we've added to the Scripture, our traditions, for you to carry your pallet. Verse 11, but he answered them, He who made me well told me to pick up the pallet and walk. Boy, that's what I call ingratitude. You know? I mean, Jesus, this guy's been paralyzed for 38 years. Jesus heals him. And he's saying, don't look at me. Look at the guy that healed me. You know? Uh, they're not thinking Christ. They're thinking criminal. I mean, can you believe it? You couldn't make this stuff up. It's crazy. They ask him, who's the man who said to you pick up your pallet and walk? They know who it is. They just want this on the police reports. They can use it against Jesus later. But the man who was healed did not know. He's clueless, man. Uh, for Jesus had slipped away uh, as there was a crowd in that place. This guy's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. But what he says reminds me of Adam and Eve, you know, after the fall, you know, when uh, 
uh, Adam's asked, you know, why'd you do this? He said, hey, Lord, the woman that you gave me, she told me to do that. According to the Bible, sometimes you have to say no ma'am to your wife. I mean, it is biblical to do that occasionally. Now, when we got married, I, this was 46 years ago or something, I said, look, I'm going to make all the big decisions. You make all the small decisions. We've never had any big ones come up yet, but if they ever do. <laughs> so I'm pretty good at saying yes, ma'am, after years of practice. But, uh, yeah, so this guy's like, don't look at me. And then what did Eve say? So Adam says, hey, you gave me my wife, and she told me to do it, so it's her fault. What did she say? Hey, the serpent, the upright shining thing is what the Hebrew uh, root means. The upright shining thing told me to do it. So everybody passes the buck, right? So here, he's saying, don't look at me. The guy that healed me told me to do this thing. Uh, this is so beautiful. What the Bible calls the sin nature, King James calls it the flesh, but I think of the flesh as just physical flesh or maybe sexual sin, kind of the way we tend to, in my mind, uses that term. I kind of default to that. But the word sarks in the New Testament Greek just means sin nature, and it's your in this innate tendency for us to be sinful, selfish, and stupid, okay? And God doesn't do a sin nature ectomy on you when you are regenerated. He just doesn't. It's still there. So that's why he says, walk in the Spirit so you won't carry out the desire of sin nature. What the Bible calls sarks or sin nature are communication, principles of communication, actually communication mosaics by Dr. Julia Wood. She calls the self-serving bias. And this little chapter on perception in this section about self-serving bias is a pretty doggone good description of the sin nature. But uh, she points out the self-serving... Do you remember that, uh, uh, Dustin? That's a test question, yeah. We tend to give ourselves way too much credit for good things that happen in our lives. It's like we did it. Uh, but we tend to take little or no responsibility for the messes we cause or contribute to. Uh, I don't always make I don't always make all the messes around here, but I've contributed to some that have <laughs> that were messed up because of the way I react or didn't react or whatever. So we all tend to do that. But yeah, you see this shining bright and clear through this guy who's newly healed, who's so grateful for the guy who didn't know who it is who healed him. He wants to kind of get his name on their police report if they can figure out who it was. Look at verse fourteen. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, "Behold, you have become well miraculously." Do not sin anymore in the way you had sinned previously, so nothing worse will happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus. Now, as soon as he finds out who it is, he tattles on him. Isn't that great? People will break your heart, man. Uh, who made him well. For this reason, the Jewish leaders were persecuting Jesus officially, visibly, because he was doing these things on the, on the Sabbath. He was a Sabbath breaker, and that was a big deal. Uh, but he wasn't really a Sabbath breaker. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's just violating their picky regulations. Now watch this. Do not sin anymore so nothing worse happens to you. Jesus is directly connecting this guy's 38-year infirmity with his personal sin. Now watch this. It is not true. The Bible is extremely clear. You do not want to assume that every time anybody has a physical or other problem that is directly caused by personal sin. We live in a fallen world where people who never smoke who work out, get lung cancer, and other people smoke six packs a day. That's probably an exaggeration. Since we're exaggerating, let's make it seven packs a day. Seven packs a day. For 40 years, never get lung cancer. You get all these crazy things in God's program. 
But And the book of Job emphasizes that. He suffers greatly, so his friends assume he must have done something really bad. And Job is it's not his fault, you know. His problem with Job is he eventually becomes self-righteous, denying that he had a direct connection with that. Psalm 73, I love Psalm 73. That's the book of Job in one chapter. And Asaph, the, the author, Julie, is upset with God, not just because so often bad things happen to good people. It's a great chapter, Tom. You'll love it. Uh, he's really upset at God because bad things happen to good people sometimes. But what really gets him upset, Krista, is so many times good things happen to bad people. People like Rick get oral cancer, and I could think of somebody like Kim Jong-un, who's not in very good shape, but uh, as far as I know, he doesn't have oral cancer. But it's not up to me to do that. But So in general, it's not necessarily true at all. You should not assume that because somebody dies young, they had some kind of secret sin or something. But at times, there are individual folks that do something wrong, and because of their sin, God permits a certain uh, infirmity, let's say, to come upon them. A nice example of this in the Christian church is in one, in one of the more dysfunctional churches. Look at 1 Corinthians 11. Sometimes a of people want to say, we want to go to a New Testament church, and hopefully all of us are kind of got a New Testament version of Christianity. But I would say, which one? I mean, the church in Corinth, they were really messed up. Laodicea, they were horrible. Those are New Testament churches. But look at what we're told in 1 Corinthians 11, 21, 22, talking about how they're messing up the Lord's Supper. In your eating of the Lord's Supper, each one of you takes his supper first. They eat as much. They're not just having a little wafer. They're actually having a meal. And they, they go, they're going not to worship, but to get their tummies full. One's hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to have these full course meals? Or you despise the church of God and shame those who do nothing? I'm not going to praise you about that. It's a big problem. And then look what happens for some of these folks that are blaspheming the Lord's Supper. And let me see my notes here. Don't fail me now. Look at verse 28. But a, a, a man, a man or a woman, a believer, uh, angel as much as dust, and must examine himself before they take the Lord's Supper. Uh, for he who eats or drinks, uh, drinks judgment to himself. He does not judge himself righteously. And he says, for this reason, because some of you are blaspheming consistently, persistently, the Lord's Supper, approaching it in the wrong way, wrong attitude. Um, many among you are weak and sick and some sleep, which is a euphemism for the death of a believer. He's saying, you know, God's had to, has to discipline, has disciplined them specifically as a direct result of that kind of serious sin. So that can happen. And here, go back to John 5, the Lord is clearly saying, okay, uh, don't sin. I don't think he means be sinlessly per- perfect, but don't sin in the way you sin. Uh, maybe this guy, I hate to say this, was a child molester or maybe a serial adulterer. Let's make him a serial adulterer because I wrote that uh, illustration down here. You might say, well, so how did that affect him to give him paralysis for 38 years? This guy's probably 50 or 60 or 70, something like that. Let's say he was messing around with somebody's wife and the husband shows up and so this cat had to jump out of a second-story building. And now he's been a paralytic from the waist down or maybe from the neck down. He's not been able to move for 38 years. And God permitted that as a you know one-to-one connection. And that's so long ago, nobody knows about it. He's probably from out of town, but he's been laying in Jerusalem for 38 years. And Jesus says, don't do that again. Don't use the fact you're mobile again 
as opportunity to do the kind of stuff that led you into this in the first place. But the bottom line, they're accusing Jesus of being a Sabbath breaker, breaking the Old Testament law. He doesn't break the Sabbath. In fact, he's Lord of the Sabbath. But uh, notice what they say. It's very interesting. Look at verse 17. But he answered them, you're breaking the law here. That's bad. It's a capital crime. My father is working, even on the Sabbath, until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jewish leaders were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, which is all they need. Again, he's not breaking the Sabbath. He's breaking what the tradition said about the Sabbath, the 39 ways you could carry things incorrectly. But he's calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. We don't appreciate the title Son of God for Jesus very much. And some people, like Jehovah's Witnesses, will say that means he's like God's little boy. The Mormons say that, God's little boy, first created thing. Son of God means God. To call Simon Bolivar a son of George Washington isn't talking biology. It's talking they have the same character. Okay, To call Jesus the Son of God, Psalm 2, is saying he's equal with God the Father, but he's a different person. Okay, And the enemies, the Jewish leaders... Understand that's what Jesus means by that. The Jehovah's Witnesses may miss it, but they see it. They're not just mad at him now. They're not going to actually try to uh, expedite his execution because he's a Sabbath breaker in their mind, which he's not, but because he's calling himself son of God, he's claiming to be God. And we can't have that. That's blasphemy unless it's actually true. So son of God is a title for the Messiah, the Savior that emphasizes his deity, his full deity. And... uh, there's another title that Jesus actually used for, uses for himself more often than Son of God. It's Son of Man, which is a title for the Savior that emphasizes his humanity. So which one is he? Is he the Son of God or Son of Man? That's the apparent paradox. You don't have to choose one or the other. They're both true at the same time. In Colossians 2, 9, one of Ogle's favorite verses is, In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now that's the passage. Let's look at the rest of the story. Drop down to verse 39. As they continue to interact, the Jewish leaders and Jesus in the aftermath of this miracle, uh, Jesus says, hey, you search the scriptures. You've got most of it memorized in Hebrew because you think by a wooden understanding of the law that you've added to, you have everlasting life. But it's these that testify about me. And the problem isn't I haven't done enough miracles or I've broken the Sabbath or that I claim to be God. The problem is you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life, not bios, but zoe, which is spiritual, everlasting life. I do not receive glory from men. I'm not trying to push the buttons that people want. I'm not trying to be the kind of Messiah people want. But I know you, you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I've come in the Father's name, and you do not receive me. As many as receive him, to them he give the right to become sons of God, John 1, 12. They don't want him. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. There were several pseudo-messiahs at this time, and about a 100 years later, the Jewish nation would go down the tubes when after the 70 A.D. temple destruction in 132 through 135, the Bar Kokhba revolt happened when the Jews followed the son of Kokhba as the messiah. They rejected Jesus. A 100 years later, they buy into a false messiah, and the Romans come back and level everything in result to that. So it wasn't what they should have been doing. Then Jesus says, how can you believe when you receive and seek only glory from one another, trying to impress each other, trying to be better than everybody else, based on your own religious proclivities, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. You want to come to God your way. 
Do not think I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, who they exalted as the greatest prophet. But if they'd been interacting with Moses, they wouldn't have liked him either. In whom you've set your hope. The Old Testament Mosaic Law, which they've messed up by their additions. If you really believe what Moses meant in the Pentateuch, you'd believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words and they don't? Yeah, he, he puts it right on them. He says, you search the scriptures and you think that your wooden uh, salvation by works interpretation is how you're going to earn your way to salvation. But the problem is you're unwilling to come to me that you could have life. This is a theme in the teaching of Jesus. The last week he approaches Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets in the Old Testament. Stephen will say in in uh, Acts 7, which of the prophets did you people not kill? You killed all of them, you know, including the Messiah now. Stones those who sent to it. How often I desired to gather you, your children together as a hem gathers her brood, Jesus says, but you were not willing. It's your fault. I like what Paul says at the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidian Antioch, not Syrian Antioch. Paul Barnabas spoke boldly, said it's necessary that the word of God be spoken to you about the Christ being crucified and salvation being a gift through faith. But since you repudiated, you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we're turning to the Gentiles. Uh, talking about you got Moses, you distort Moses. If you believe Moses, you believe me. You know, Jesus tells a story about the rich man and Lazarus. And Lazarus has nothing, dies and goes to paradise. The rich man who had everything dies and goes to torments. And the rich man is talking to Abraham across the great gulf fixed. And he says, hey, I've got five brothers on earth. Warn them about this place. It's real. And Abraham said, hey, they have Moses and the prophets. They've got the Old Testament. they got everything they need to know how this works. Let them hear them. But the rich man says, no. If someone would go to them from the dead... Then they'll metanaeo, they'll change their minds. But he said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Who rose from the dead and it didn't change the uh, mass media understanding of Jesus in his day? Jesus. And explain it away. What well, in Matthew, uh, we're going to say that while the soldiers were asleep, the, the apostles stole the body. That's going to be our explanation. Miracles don't necessarily catalyze faith. People can ignore them, deny them, or explain them away. So this idea that if God would just do more miracles, everybody would get saved, just isn't true. Yeah, what does Jesus say himself? Small print. This is an eye test portion of the presentation. Uh, uh, the day of the resurrection, remember, he's walking toward a maze, talking about finding stuff. But, uh, Bethesda was found in 1964. Um Magdala was found in 2006, right after we left that year, and we got to walk around it. Remember, Ken, going to Magdala? None of that had been excavated as recently until 2006 they started. Uh, Emmaus. We knew Emmaus about seven miles away, and there were like a couple of options, but we hadn't, hadn't nailed it down. Just in the last month, they found enough evidence that an archaeological site, where most of us thought it was anyway, that this destination they're walking to, Jesus and these two guys, on the day of the resurrection is really the real Emmaus. But Jesus says to them, hey, we were upset because we thought Jesus was the Christ and they killed him. You know, and now there were, some of the women are saying he rose from the dead, but we don't really know if that's true or not. And Jesus says, was it not necessary for the Christ, he's talking about himself, suffer these things and then to enter his glory? Then beginning with Moses, the Old Testament, prophets, explain to them everything in the scriptures. And I bet he ended up in Isaiah 53, right? 
That's what First Peter says about all that. We're New Testament Christians, but when you put yourself in the Old Testament folks' shoes, they had more than enough light. Uh, concerning this salvation, the Old Testament prophets who spoke of the grace that would come to you in the New Testament era searched intently with the greatest care in their writings, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow, the death, the resurrection, the first advent, and we're looking forward to the second advent. It was revealed to them they were not serving themselves, their generation, the Old Testament era directly, but uh, when they spoke of these things, but... Uh, uh, I've been told to you by these things, preach the gospel but to you by the Holy Spirit. Even angels long to understand all that good stuff. So again, you know, I think a big key to understanding the Bible is realizing the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets are like t- observers standing on an obse- observation platform, and they can see two peaks in the distance with a valley that they can't see. And the first peak is the Messiah's lamb. second peak is Messiah's lion. In that valley they can't see is the church age, New Testament church, which is called a mystery, unrevealed in the Old Testament, right? All right, let's take this to heart and we'll finish. The happy ending. Um, Tommy, Lana, you probably figured out all the messages have happy endings because we're all happy when we end them. Some weeks happier than others, but uh, I could go on forever, but I'm I'm not going to do that. I'm tempted to then. Uh, skeptics sometimes claim if God would just do more miracles, everybody would believe. So it's God's fault people aren't, there's not a revival in New York City because he doesn't do enough miracles. A couple of facts respond to that. Number one, it's not true during the life of Christ, John 5, not true today. It's not true that everybody who sees miracles or hear about miracles is going to believe. Miracles do not necessarily catalyze faith, uh, but they can harden people. Plus, salvation is not an issue of the head. It's the heart, the mind, and the will. You know, and people can use their heads to explain stuff away, deny it, or ignore it easily. So the big principle is, while those who respond um, to his call, God will give more than enough light. For most people in Jesus' day and our day, whatever light God gives them is only going to harden them. Which is why he warns you, don't throw your pearls before swine. Don't give them more than they need so they can blaspheme you more intelligently. At some point... Uh, unless God changes their heart, it's, you're, you know, you're, you're wasting your, your energy. So, that's kind of a bummer message, but I'm gonna put a little light on here. It's, I actually think it's a pretty good message for myself, the content. But on the other hand, Jesus believes in deathbed conversions. You know that? How can I say that? The thief on the cross, he wasn't a thief. He was a murderer. Uh, the Romans didn't crucify thieves. They crucified people that killed Roman uh, soldiers or other occupation sources or Jewish people like Matthew who worked for the Romans. They were zealots. They were people that were anti-Roman uh, uh, occupation of the region. And these guys were bad guys. They'd broken all Ten Commandments multiple times, probably killed a couple of Romans, probably a couple of Jewish tax collectors. And here's the thing. The guy says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Salvation had to be totally of grace through faith because the guy's got nothing to give. He offers nothing. He just says, I'm a sinner. I can't fix it. You can, and I want you to. Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He actually believes he's the Messiah paying for his sins, and he wants to have eternal life. He wants to receive it. And what does Jesus say? I wish you'd talk to me last week. I mean, because, you know, you've got to walk an aisle, sign a card. What does Jesus say? Today you'll be with me in paradise. So there's always hope. 
You know, I started talking about uh, Judy Philly and George Philly when he cussed us out. And he was an ex-Marine, so he could have really done some damage on me and Bill because we're lovers, not fighters, you know. But, um, you know, I never dreamed he'd come to faith so dramatically. But it, how about Bob Shallot? You know, I knew him for a long time. We're told the sociologists say anybody after 13 in this culture never comes to faith. Bob was a little older than 13, wasn't he? 80? That's what I thought. Um, yeah, so there's always, there's always hope, you know. So none of us is omniscient, and I'm quite sure in heaven we're going to be surprised by some of the people who are really believers. Because it might have been hard to tell based on your uh, interaction with them on a timeline, you know, uh, or whatever. And some people do receive Christ on their deathbeds. Uh, I think they would have enjoyed the ride a lot better if they had um, come to faith sooner. But apparently that terrorist on the cross came to faith. I think Jesus is a pretty good source on who's saved. And so don't give up on people. You know, uh, I, I've kiddingly told you that I know more about the Beatles than any evangelical Christian should. I mean, it's pitiful. Uh, I just like to analyze stuff. I know every, I know more about Ringo than Ringo knows. Trust, I mean, trust me. And it's not all good either, but... Um, yeah, keep praying for people. I know all of us pray for people we know in our families, our extended network, that they'll come to faith. And sometimes you want to give up. Just keep praying. As long as they're alive, there's always hope. And I pray for Paul McCartney. You know, this culture is so celebrity-driven. If Beyonce, Paul McCartney, Barack Obama, Donald Trump would have dynamic um, the sovereign grace of Paul on the road to Damascus kind of experiences, and then share it, that would get people's attention, you know. And uh, maybe God will do that for those individuals. So keep being salt and light. Nothing's impossible with God, but be prepared. There's going to be a lot of surprises in heaven who's there. And we're probably surprised by some of the people who aren't there. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I thank you. You do miracles all the time around us. And we pray believing you can. And quite often we see some amazing things. But the whole premise that if you would just do miracles all day long on the uh, in Times Square or uh, in downtown Los Angeles, everybody come to faith, just isn't true. Jesus does miracles, and the vast majority of people either ignore them, explain them away, or deny them. And so help us not to kind of follow that dead end, but help it help us to be as consistent in our living our faith as possible, so that people can see that there's some differences about us that they might want to explore. We know you're going to give sufficient light to those you're going to call, but for others, the light's only going to harden them. And so maybe we can uh, better understand why some people are so offended by our uh, the Christian truth claims, especially in this culture now. But help us to wisely not um, be discouraged by that, but just be aware that's just the way things work right now. But we thank you for the fact that Jesus is so gracious to enter this world, to offer salvation to all who believe, and then give that terrorist on the cross immediate uh, and instant and complete assurance of salvation. It's an amazing thing. It's not anything we do for you. It's what you do for us. And uh, you want to use us as agents through prayers and other ways to move people in that direction, the ones that you're going to call. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.